0: You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions.
1: Tonight, finally, I'm talking poultry geist. That's right, ghost chickens. Ghost chickens from Enfield, England, and ghost chickens from Humpty Doo, Australia all that and more on small town secrets i told you it was the same joke Hello everyone and welcome to uh, uh, the much delayed episode 5.02 uh, and uh, let me tell you it has been a week and a half if I sound way louder than normal it's because I haven't seen my glasses since Sunday so I'm really bunched up uh, on the screens and because of that bunched up on the mic but I like, guess just the beginning of it uh, went back to work this week that was all fine and great working on new stuff, trying to get new printers up and running. That's not working so well, but we're getting there. Uh, And just, I I guess I didn't foresee just how, (laughs) how not having any type of set schedule for seven months, being able to do whatever I could do within certain, you know, limitations, whenever I felt like it and then all of a sudden going back to like a you know a a nine to five well eight to four schedule how much it was just going to exhaust the hell out of me like so I worked as hard as I could uh it was it was going back to work it was you know re-entering the civilized world it was uh all of that and then having to research a show on top of that and then having to read a book for said show, which isn't that bad normally. But like the thing about it is when I do books for the show, I, I can't just read the book cover to cover. Like I got to read the book. I got to highlight stuff. I got to take notes on the book. So it really slows down like it can take especially when the book is a, a, a little bit of a slog. To get through. I'm not reading some, you know, thrilling adventure. And sometimes they are very good and sometimes they are very informa- informational, but it's usually either they're really good or they're really informational and they never really meet in the middle. So, like, all that on top, like, trying sometimes to read a 270 page book and, and take notes on it and stuff can take a little bit. So, it slowed me down, work slowed me down. Just being exhausted coming home, which is weird because I kind of sit at a computer for at least half the day and then just yell at printers for the other half of the day, but um, reading a book and then I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna delay it by a day. I am going to uh cram that Friday. I'll do. I'll get all of my outline done. I'll finish reading. Uh, this house is haunted by Guy Playfair. I'll finish reading that. And uh, then I'll look into Humpty Doo and get all that done. And uh, I tried, and I just, I just couldn't do it. I was so tired. I had not even two cups of Death Wish coffee could could do it. Could do anything. And I just, it was like twelve thirty, one o'clock, and I was still sitting there, you know, reading stuff about Humpty Doo. And I was just like, I can't do this. I have to go to bed. So then I was like, I know, I'm off Wednesday, I'm off Thursday and Friday, I'll do it Wednesday night, and then Wednesday was just a day where nothing went right, right, like, we got new printers in, well, they're not new, they're new to me, they came up from our headquarters in Georgia, I wanted to get one of them out so we could set it up and get it running, and uh, it has some sort of weird error where we have to call the company for them to come fix it, and so I didn't do anything Wednesday the only thing I accomplished at work at Wednesday was uh securing a case of white shop towels. That's it. Everything went wrong Wednesday. I came home, couldn't order Taco Bell from DoorDash, because apparently like Taco Bell's service was down, even on their app. Like nothing worked, nothing went right. So I was like, you know what? Don't do the show tonight because the universe is telling you it, it's going to be a disaster. So I I didn't do it yesterday. I was like, we'll get up, we'll do Thanksgiving. And I'll do it Thanksgiving night. And now I am here, and that is it. That is the story of why the show is like, uh, what five days late? I don't know, but I'm here now, and it's a good one. It's a good one. It's Poltergeist, and I've wanted to do Poltergeist for a while, and I've always wanted to talk about infield in the infield Poltergeist case, mainly because of the like the sounds. Like I'm really fascinated by the sounds and how they don't quite sound right and they sound weird and hollow and the wave files look backwards when you examine them, just all that great stuff. That's always intrigued me. And I always, and I wanted to do Humpty Doo quite frankly, because the town is called Humpty Doo. Why not? There's a guy's case in a place called Humpty Doo. I want to talk about it. So that is what is on the docket for the show tonight. Uh, Before we get into it too much, the other thing I I need to do before I forget is to welcome Marcus Cocker to uh, the Patreon group. So this is your official shout out, Marcus, and I'm sorry I forgot to do it on the last episode. So like, episode 501, I got it all done, I got the ad version done, I got the Patreon ad free version done, got the site updated, all that jazz, and I'm like uploading the Patreon episode to Patreon. I'm like, son of a bitch. I never gave Mark Marcus a shout-out. But I have now, and the deed is done. So thank you, Marcus. Thank you for your support, and thank you for joining. Uh, if anyone else out there is interested in the Patreon, uh, go to stscast.com and go under support, and you can find a link there. Or you can go to patreon.com slash stscast and uh, get to it that way. Three tiers. Uh, $1 tier, which will get you a Patreon-colored uh, sticker. The ad-free show. The Facebook group. And just all the other little goodies that I sometimes post on Patreon, like reviews of books or movies. Uh, sometimes I'll throw YouTube videos up on there early when I make them. You know, sometimes I'll throw some investigation audio in there for people to hear. Stuff like that. Uh, The $3 level will get you all of that. But instead of getting the sticker, you will get a button. It looks exactly like a sticker, but it's a button. And you will also get uh, access to the music that I make for the kind of intermission in the middle of the show. And I think I'm gonna try to get some new stuff out, hopefully later in the season. But I think right now we've got we're rocking like 12 or 14 tracks that you can grab off of Patreon, download them, listen to them, whatever. Uh, the The five dollar level gets you all that jazz, the sticker and the button, the music. The ad-free show, all that, but also gets you STS Cast Backroads, which is an exclusive podcast, which has evolved into kind of a uh, an extension of the main show. So nine times out of ten, that's what it is. So, like, I'll give you a great example. Tonight we're talking Poltergeist. And uh, I'm going to talk about on the Backroads episode coming out, well, tomorrow, actually, because this has been delayed. Uh, his name, I think it's Matthew Milman. Milman, I can't remember his last name right off the top of my head. But he, as a, as a child in England, had a poltergeist experience in his home and then became like a medium and an investigator. So we're going to talk about his case. In fact, he actually did go to the Enfield case, to the Harper's house, and uh, try to help out there a little bit, so that's kind of how it's related. And we're going to talk about him in backroads. So that's what backroads will be this week. It will be uh, Matthew. I think it's Millman, but it's Matthew. It's Matthew something that, and then his last name also begins with an M. And I'm just blanking on it right now, but I'll figure it all out and have it going for uh, the backroads episode. So all of that it will bore us no longer. Let's move on to some uh, to some chicken ghost goodness. With uh, Enfield England and the infamous Enfield Poltergeist. Hi there, I'm
0: Oz from the Oddball Aussie Podcast. Do you enjoy hearing about ufology, the paranormal, cryptids, and anything else that's strange or unknown? If so, then my show might just be for you. Join me for a different topic once a week and a midweek show that's all about listeners' true stories. Follow me on Twitter at Aussie Oddball, or email me at theoddballaussie at hotmail.com. Hope you enjoy the show, and stay safe out there in the weird.
1: Enfield is a borough in North London, with a modest population of 333,000. In 1977, something would transpire at the small council house at 284 Green Street, Haunting, a poltergeist, uh, maybe a little bit of both. Whatever you want to call it, books have been written, movies have been made. This is the story of the Enfield poltergeist. It started in the late evening of August thirty-first, nineteen seventy-seven. Peggy Hodgson and I Hodgsons. I'm sorry, and uh, I want to point out something real quick. Uh, I tried very hard, and I think I got everyone's actual names, but I'm not sure. So in the book, uh, which was the main source for this, this house is haunted by Guy Playfair. Link in the show notes. Uh, he changed names slightly. He changed last names. So in the book, they weren't the Hodgsons; they were the Harpers. You know, and I think that's kind of all he did. At least for the families, he changed their names. So I know I've already done it in the intro. I called them the Harpers. So if I say Harper by accident and I don't catch it, and you hear it. Harper means Hodgins. I'm just, I'm going to try to say Hodgins. I have Hodgson in my notes, but I have Harper in my head because I read the book. Peggy Hodgson, a divorced mother of four children, was awoken by her youngest daughter, Janet. Janet complained of a chair that seemed to be moving in a room. In everyone's sleepy haze, Peggy moved the chair out of the room. Like, it's kind of funny, They like they don't kind of acknowledge, like, How's the chair moving? They're just like, oh, fine. We'll just I'll get it out of here. The noise in the girls' room continued, though. It wasn't the chair. Suddenly, Peggy, Janet, and Janet's older sister Margaret heard four loud knocks that seemed like they were coming from inside the wall. Then a heavy dresser slid by itself towards the doorway, almost as if it was trying to block them in. To the room. Startled, Peggy shoved the dresser back, only for the dresser to just move again and go for the doorway. Hazy and half asleep gave way to fright as Peggy, her two daughters, and her son, she had two daughters, two sons, one son was at boarding school uh, during this time, left the house and went to the next door neighbors, Vic and Peggy Nottingham. Yes, there's also two Peggy's in the story. After they told their friends about what happened, Vic and his son went across the street to investigate for themselves. They found no intruders or any sign of anyone else in the house, but soon heard the strange and ominous knocks in the walls. And this was enough for them. Vic and his son returned home, and then they called the police, who were also privy to some odd phenomenon, but really couldn't do much of anything about it. The next day, a game of phone tag began. Peggy Harper decided. I did it. It's in the notes. As Harper, Peggy Hodgson's decided to call the Daily Mail. The paper was interested in the story and sent over a reporter and a photographer. The Daily Mail also called the Society for Psychical Research, the SPR. And we've talked about the SPR before. Um, We talked about it with the Borley Rectory case, I believe was also involved with that. And it just so happened that the SPR had a new member that had been begging for such a case, an inventor named Morris Gross. You see, almost a year before, Morris's daughter, whose name had also been Janet, was a young, she was a young and up and coming journalist, died in a motorcycle accident. After the accident, Morris and his family had a series of strange occurrences of their own. And so because of this and an ongoing interest with the paranormal, he decided to join the SPR in search for some answers. Morris met with the Hodgson family on September 3rd and things were quiet around the house for a few days. This also this seemed to be like a recurring thing with the activity is that whenever someone new would come, it would shut up for a little bit. And then it would be like, ah, I'm still here. Uh, in the early morning of September 8th, Morris and a photographer who had joined him named David Thorpe would be privy to a first of many paranormal experiences. It would be the beginning of an 18-month-long investigation. That night, around 1 in the morning as the kids slept, Morris and Thorpe were jolted by a loud crash. Once inside Janet's room, they saw a chair had moved about 4 feet and was now overturned. And an hour later, it happened again. And this time, Thorpe got a picture of it. So they did, They took a lot of pictures, they took a lot of audio. Uh, it's a, one of those things where they did, but you can't find a lot of it. They're like, oh, we took hundreds of pictures. But I've ever only really seen like 20. I don't know where they all are. I would like to see all of them. And, and the little bit of video and stuff that they got. But over the next few days, they would be witnesses to doors opening and closing by themselves. Kitchen drawers opening and closing by themselves. Things jumping off of shelves, jumping off of the kitchen, like the kitchen table, all of that. Objects such as a a water glass just appearing on the floor when no one was around to put it there. And that would happen all the time with different stuff. And here's like one of the most intriguing parts I think of the entire thing, marbles and Lego whizzing through the air, sometimes hitting people with enough force to leave bruises. So think about that for a little bit, not so much a marble, but like a Lego brick is like a hollow piece of plastic like, imagine the velocity. Yes, I know they step. They, they hurt when you step on them. Imagine the velocity a Lego brick has to be going to hit you hard enough to leave a bruise, right? But there was an odd thing about the marbles. See, the marbles would hit the floor, and then they they wouldn't move or roll around after hitting said floor. Almost as if though the floor was magnetized and the marbles were metal. So they would just go. They, you know, they'd appear once again from nowhere. They would like a port from where, and no one knew where they were coming from. And they would just like fall to the ground, and they'd like hit the ground, and then just stop. You know, like they wouldn't roll. And so that seemed. I would love to have seen that happen. That would have been great. It wouldn't take long though for another member of the SPR to become involved. One night while attending an SPR talk, uh, Morris set by writer Guy Playfair. The two hit it off, and even though Playfair had just gotten back from investigating two poltergeist cases in Brazil, he knew he had to help this family. So he canceled his vacation plans and joined Morris Gross on September 12th. For the next couple of weeks, Playfair and Gross spent day after day in the house, experiencing much of the same paranormal activity over and over. And it wouldn't take long, though, for Playfair to invite his first set of mediums to the house to help with the investigation. A husband and wife team named the Shaws. Now, I am going to pause here and talk about names again. So, if you've watched The Conjuring 2, the Warns are in it, and they come to this house, and they do all this stuff. That didn't happen. Um, There is a lot of a lot of talk about did they come? Did they spend any time there? Were they allowed in the house? So I'm not sure if the Shaws in the book, because he says they lived in London. So he doesn't say they were American. I'm not sure if the Shaws were supposed to be like Ed and Lorraine Warren because they act very much like Ed and Lorraine Warren. They're very religious. Like She's a medium. She goes to a trance and he's like yelling at the demons. So I don't know if the Shaws are supposed to be like The Warrens, and he used a different name, or if the Shaws were like just another couple that were very similar and were from England. I guess I should look them up. If anyone knows, let me know. I was kind of I've wondered that that the entire book, but I'm going to call them the Shaws until I have uh, something to tell me otherwise. Annie Shaw soon went into a trance and communicated with something she called Gozer, and yes, Gozer is where. Dan Aykroyd got the name for Gozer in Ghostbusters. I do know that. The couple also determined that whatever was in the house was draining energy from the children, which seems pretty par for the course of a poltergeist. They seem to pop up during puberty and really center around the children and feed off the children in the house. As with most poltergeist cases, the longer it went on, the longer it escalated. As time went on, the family had all started sleeping in one room. And uh, so, like, they were all in one, like, the girls slept on the bed with their mom and, and uh, with the Jimmy, I believe, who was still there, and the other one was in boarding school, like, slept on a cot by himself, with playfares sleeping in a spare room sometimes. But one night, uh, the youngest son, Jimmy, I believe, was almost hit in the face as he slept by a piece of grill off of a gas Fireplace, and later the entire fireplace would be wrenched from the wall. The entity was not able to pry it out of the wall entirely, but had used enough force to bend a pipe 32 degrees uh, from the from the fireplace. So the pipe that went into the wall to feed it gas was I'm assuming straight, and something had was able to bend it like 32 degrees. That's so that's getting almost. Like at a 45 degree angle. That's not a bad little bend for <laughs> an entity with no, you know, physical mass. After this, Playfair attempted to communicate with the entity. He tried to get it to do the old knock once for yes, twice for no routine, but it didn't seem too keen on talking to the rider. However, it did seem to want to communicate with Mr. Gross. From these knocking communications, they were able to ascertain a few things about the entity that they were dealing with. The entity had died in the house. It had lived in the house for 53 years. They knew this because when they asked how many, it knocked 53 times. And it seemed to like to play games. So like it, you know, it was, they would, it was a poltergeist. It would mess with them. It would tell them things, you know, it would do things. Things would whiz past their head. They get hit with Legos. They get hit with marbles. You know, they'd go into the kitchen. A bunch of stuff would just be, you know, arranged on the floor, um, and and it gets it gets a little bit a little bit more involved going on. Communication came in other forms as well. Playfair had taught Peggy how to do automatic writing, so like Playfair and Gross were very much from the beginning of this. Were like, in order for them to not be as frightened, we need to make them investigators too. Like they have to take. Part in this process so that they hopefully will come to some sort of understanding of what they're trying to accomplish and that seemed, that seemed to help a lot actually. And one day she got results I will stay in this house do not read this to anyone or I will retaliate that was something that she had written in automatic writing but in fact one day Peggy did let it slip that the entity had written a note and the entity let her know about it. I believe later, uh, she found, it wasn't an automatic written note. It was just a note about like, Hey, don't do it again. And it was like on the fridge and they were never able to ascertain who or what had written this kind of rebuttal note to her about this whole incident. Then after that, it began to speak. It started with short, sharp barks, a deep voice that came from Janet. It went from barks to single words such as doctor and gross, and eventually the gruff voice was forming full sentences. It got to the point where it would talk so much that if Janet were doing it, her vocal cords would have been run ragged. So there's a lot of talk about Did the girls just fake all of this stuff? And I think the main consensus is they probably faked some things. Very simple things. They probably threw a marble or two. They probably read a note and put it on the refrigerator. But there's just some stuff that they couldn't fake. Like, in the book, I didn't put this in my notes, but I remember they had Janet looked at and the doctor was like, she couldn't make this with her vocal cords. A, it's coming from her diaphragm, and B, if she had been making, if she'd been doing this voice for more than a couple minutes, like she would, she would, she'd be hoarse right now. She wouldn't be able to talk. So the voice was like a big deal, and it would also, you know, the more and more they engaged with it, like I said, the more it would, you know, the more it would grow and become. It started with a couple of words, then it was forming four full sentences but it wouldn't talk if someone else were in the room that Mar- that Janet was in. But then eventually, it didn't care. Like there is video, and I think you can find it on YouTube if you do some searches, uh, of her talking with this weird voice. And it, it's very Danny Torrance, you know, when he gets that funny little face and he goes Like it's very much, very much like that. The gruff voice was very crude and rude and rarely had anything good to say. Most of the time, it would be Janet that would do the talking, but later, Margaret would also manifest the voice. As the fall of 77 went on, the family, Playfair and Gross, continued to witness and document strange happening. Things flying through the air, furniture being thrown and tumbled around the house almost constantly, and people being thrown out of furniture all the time, and objects on occasion seemed to have passed through solid matter. Then in December, one of the most intriguing things happened. Everyone was alerted to Janet one night while she was upstairs in her bedroom. When everyone entered the bedroom, she had claimed she had just levitated off of her bed. Intrigued, Janet was given a red marker and asked that if it happened again, she should draw a red circle on the wall to, like, prove it, because she couldn't just jump up there and get it. Well, it did happen again, but this one it was a little bit different. Janet was not taken towards the ceiling, but instead she went through the wall into the next-door neighbor's home. She appeared inside a bedroom that she was able to describe, but had never been in and I believe I, I hope I'm not mixing this up with another incident but I believe they also found one of Janet's books in that room too so the thing you have to remember these are row homes these are council homes so it's like like they're they're just they're right up against each other like they share a wall in between them so the next door neighbors are literally the next wall over like you know not, not a home and probably not the most, most soundproof either so like they were getting a little bit of activity too but like So she went through the wall and entered someone's bedroom. She'd never been in it, and she was able to describe the room, which I think is fascinating, quite frankly. Like, I don't know. I wish they had gotten some of that stuff on tape because they always show that picture, right? Like, I'm using it for the episode tile, that picture of Janet being thrown through the air. But every time I look at it, I'm just like, it just looks like she's jumping off a bed. Like give me something like if that was video of her being thrown through the air then I'm like yeah give it to me but like that just like it just looks like she's jumping off of her bed and nothing special is going on I'm not trying to take it down I've just never dug that picture I think I think the 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 marbles and the audio and all that jazz like like the matches that the matches that they're they're the cases that the matches are in catch fire but the matches don't I think that picture is a little more interesting I mean, yeah, I guess you could just throw some new matches in an old matchbox, but I think there are better... Like I said, I think there's better evidence that is out there than what they always try to show for this. Uh, I'm done with that little diatribe and that little rant. As 77 turned into 78, the haunting continued, and a little could be done to stop it. Playfair had had a couple of mediums who worked with him in Brazil, and they came and did some work in the house, and it was quite for a time but it didn't last. And that seemed to be that seemed to happen every time they brought in a medium is that for like a little bit it would be quiet. If the family left the house, it would be quietish. It would be not as active. Like they went for a holiday, like they went for a vacation one time for a couple of weeks and then you know, Christmas and stuff like that and then it would kind of quiet down. But there was always activity even when they weren't in the house. In June of 78, it was decided to send Janet to the Monsley Hospital to receive and undergo psychiatric testing and get her away from the house. She stayed for most of the summer, and while she was gone, activity at the home lessened but did not go away. In fact, for a while, both the boys... So now that both of the boys are back because it's the summer and boarding school is out, Uh, who, up until this point, really had not experienced anything. Like, if you read that book, other than the one boy almost getting hit in the face with a piece of metal, like, they're not in the book that much. Like, it did not seem to care about the two boys at all. Uh, The activity, I mean. Janet returned in September. It had now been over a year since the activity started. But the activity continued. In October, Playfair was contacted by a Dutch journalist, Peter Leifenheber. Leifenheber wanted to do a story on Enfield, and he was going to bring his own medium. A man by the name that I am going to mispronounce, so fair warning, by the name of Dono Migling Mailing. I think. I think it's a silent G. We're going to call him Dono from here on out. The two Dutch men came to England and spent a whole week at the house. By the end of their visit, Dono was not able to do much about the poltergeist, but he did make an intriguing connection. During his sessions, he saw a spirit of a 24-year-old woman. Now, over this whole ordeal, other spirits had been noticed. An old woman, a man who had died in a chair downstairs, a young boy... Uh, the poltergeist, this entity kind of claimed that there were like five or six other entities in the house over the course of this whole thing. And yeah, the, the guy who died in the chair is kind of the one that they hinge the whole Conjuring 2 movie on. But they, you know, but no one had ever really talked about a 24 year old woman, like a young woman. Dono felt that the spirit of this young woman had a connection to Morris Gross. When they talked to him about it, the description he had given seemed to be that of his deceased daughter, Janet, who would have been 24 that year. Like, in the book, I believe, like, they go, like, in the book, they describe, like, how they got on, they went, uh, they went, they got in the tunnel, you know, to take the train to to, to Gross's house, and the whole time, Dono's just feeling it, and it's just getting stronger and stronger. And then they describe this woman to Gross, and he's like, "Other than getting the hair color wrong, everything else was spot on." So, was this whole thing like they kind of play fair and and Gross talk about like Janet, you know, your daughter was, you know, she was this up and coming reporter. Did she find this story in the afterlife and? Had to get someone on it, and so she got her dad, and her dad got Playfair on there, and Playfair would write a book. Like, was it, was it all her trying to get like one last story out there, uh, from by you know from behind the veil? In the end, the paranormal activity seemed to have disappeared, just as mysteriously as it arrived, and by the spring of 1979, it was gone, and that is. Uh, I think a pretty good summation of the case. Uh, I read like if it's a little like I said, it's a little bit of a slog because Clayfer likes to kind of reiterate stuff that kept happening in the house and things like that. But there's some really good stuff in his book. There's a lot of pictures, not all of them, damn it, but a lot of pictures. Uh, he has some appendices, appendices in the back. Uh, one of them talks about the sounds, like the sound wave of the objects sometimes were very weird like if you were able to look at the waveform it's almost like they it's almost like it's a a a sound being played in reverse but like when people hear it didn't sound like it was in reverse it just shows up in reverse when we try to visualize the waveform of the audio the other weird thing about these sounds is that they always sounded like they were very hollow which made absolutely no sense at all like they would strike the ground, but they wouldn't strike the ground. Like imagine a marble hitting the hitting the floor. It's a pretty, like it's a pretty precise noise. And these would sound very dull and very thuddy. And of course, the sounds always sound like they were in the walls or they were in the floor. They never sounded like someone was just you know I'm not gonna do it because it'll be loud, but smacking on the wall or something because it just sounded muffled, like it was inside. And I you know so there's a little bit on there about that. There's a little bit on like. Reflecting back on the 2011 edition of it. Um, so, if you're really interested in guys and you've always wanted to read that book, uh, yeah, grab that book, read that book. It's got a great cover. But, and if you're just, I think if you're just going to sit down and read it and not take notes on it for a podcast, it's, it's, it probably flows a little better. But trying to like take notes and just like, you know, like the whole middle of the book, I don't, I didn't have one highlighted section. Yeah, it was the beginning and kind of a little bit in the middle and then like the end where there's a lot of stuff. But if you're interested in the subject and you have not, it's one of those books where you had, just haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah, go ahead and grab it and give it a read. It's not bad. But there's another one it's in the town of Humpty Doo. And that is on Australia. So we're going to talk about that uh, just here in a little bit after this boom.
0: Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
1: There's a small northern Australian town known as Humpty Doo, And other than its unusual name and being home to Nev Sharp, who holds the world record for loudest burp at 110 decibels... It's a pretty sleepy town. But in 1998, that town became home to a stone throwing poltergeist. And yes, I've linked the article in the show notes if you want to read about Nev Sharp's accomplishment. It began in January of 1998 in a little blue house on McMinn's Drive during a rainstorm. That night, five people sat on the back porch watching the rain. Andrew and Christy Aegeus, who were the owners of the home, as well as David Clark and his girlfriend, Jill Somerville, who lived there, and a mutual friend, Doug Murphy, who also lived there. So those five people and uh, the Aegeus' children, who lived there as well, but they were in bed. As the storm raged, the house began to be pelted with stones, with pebbles. At first they thought it must be someone throwing the stones at them, but... Uh, they found no trace of anyone around. And not only were the stones being thrown, uh, apparently from their gravel driveway, but many seemed to somehow have materialized inside the house and were all over the place. Later that night, other objects such as batteries and knives flew around the house. Days later, the activity increased. Windows were destroyed. Glass inside of cabinets was broken. Furniture was overturned, and I believe even like a CD player got got damaged and broken from from all of this. They then started hearing a scratching sound, much like the knocks heard at Enfield. Uh, the scratching seemed to be coming from inside the walls of the house. And after several days of activity, the residents of the house did the only thing. They could think to do I call in a couple of priests father stephen de souza visited the house and upon inspecting the kitchen found a steak knife fly off the microwave and shoot straight at him then it stopped a few feet from him as if hitting an invisible wall and then just fell to the floor this was nothing new to father de souza and in his experience uh, there wasn't much that could be done guys seem to just come and go as they please uh, and then another, another priest, Father Tom English also had a few run-ins inside of the Humpty Doo house he had a, a crucifix flung at him for his troubles after the priest came the investigators Paul Cropper and Tom Healy they came to investigate the activity and ended up spending four days at the little house by this time, it was April, and uh, the poltergeist activity had been going on for almost four months. At first, the Aegeuses and their friends, who, like I said, all lived in the house, were wary that Cropper and Healy may be the press. They had grown very tired of the press, who mostly lambasted them as liars and storytellers. It took some convincing, but eventually, the two investigators were allowed access to the home. Healy and Cropper witnessed some very intriguing things while staying at the house. Healy and Cropper were sitting at a table in the living room with Andrew and Christy Egeus, and they were all talking, when Andrew watched as a bullet casing appeared out of thin air over Healy's shoulder and then softly fell onto his knee before bouncing onto the floor because Healy describes it, I linked he uh he has like a blog and I linked his blog about this it was kind of like a, you know, Humpty Doo Poltergeist 20 years later sort of thing and he said something about how like when that thing hit his hit his knee, it wasn't like it just dropped and gravity took over it was as if, if though something was kind of keep like letting it go a little slow and it, just, it didn't hit with what he thought it would hit with like the force, it almost was like It was lowered onto his knee and then hit the ground. Another time, Healy was talking uh, to Christy and Jill in the kitchen when he heard the distinct sound of someone or something scooping up a handful of gravel from the driveway. Then they all heard the gravel hit the outside of the house. And at the same time, the gravel fell from the ceiling inside the house it hit the ceiling fan and was scattered around the cat, the kitchen. And this would happen all the time. Like, stuff would just appear above the ceiling fans, and then that hit the ceiling fans and just go flying. Healy himself was accosted one day by a steady rain of pebbles. As he sat alone in the living room, it's as if they just rained on him from, once again, inside the house. And uh, I-, I will link some stuff in the show notes, so I'll probably put it on my on my page as well. There's some really intriguing pictures of like people going into rooms and uh, like finding pebbles spelling out words. Like, you know, not like, you know, get out or anything like that, but just just words, just random words. And uh, they would also find writing on the walls and stuff like that too. Just, you know, very typical poltergeist behavior, but this one's throwing knives and shit. Over their four days at Humpty Doo, the investigators witnessed some 37 different occurrences in the house. And in the end, they were just as perplexed as everyone else who lived in the house or had visited the house. And I want to go back to the media, so like, one TV station did try very hard to debunk the uh, throwing of objects uh, by using a thermal camera to try and catch hand impressions on the objects being thrown. So they thought they could go in there, you know, something would be thrown, they could, they'd point that thermal camera at it and they would see, like, you know, the lines of someone's fingers or the little little blobs of fingerprints, why there was still heat. And they'd be like, ha, I gotcha, we got handprints. Uh, but this, uh, it actually backfired on them. See, the objects did have a heat signature, but it was uniform. Not patchy like fingerprints would be. Almost as though someone had heated it up in a microwave and thrown it. So it was just very even. Like, on the blog that I mentioned, there is some video, uh, some pictures of it showing, like, here's some glass that was flung in the house. Like a, a sharp piece of pointy broken glass. And uh, you, they just watch it as it's all red and then uniformly cools down. And they're just like, I don't know, I have no idea. So, in 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 fact, and this is a great. It's on there. It's on that website. There's a video of it. There is a film of a bullet casing that seems to shoot down. Uh, no pun intended. From the ceiling, uh, bounce off of some furniture and land on the floor. And all of this happened while the thermal cameraman was in the house. So this isn't caught on the thermal camera. This is caught on a regular camera. He's like in, he's like in the kitchen or something, but you can hear him on the video like, what you? you know, he, he makes a noise. He knows it happened. So uh, that was all caught on tape. And when he points his thermal camera at that bullet casing, it's warm completely. It's red across the whole object. Like this is 1998, so this isn't like a FLIR camera. This is like, their camera's like, listen, if it's, if it's warm, it's red. If it's not warm, like if it's below a certain temperature, it's blue. So it's not as sophisticated like different temperatures. It just kind of shows you a red or blue. So after about four months of just, I mean, really scary activity. I mean, you know, not only is it knives being flung and I mean, I'm, after a while, I feel like getting pelted with pebbles from the driveway would would uh, start to weary on you. But after four months, it all just went away. Yeah, in the end, the Humpty-Doo case just sort of stopped, much like the Enfield case did, and much like many other poltergeist cases seem to do. It's almost as if it's a massive bomb, right, of paranormal energy that is just suddenly and it burns itself off, and then eventually burns itself out. Sort of a Paranormal Big Bang, if it will, and that's what these poltergeist cases always seem to me to be like. It's like you know, you've got a you've got a, a haunting somewhere that has a steady steady stream of energy that allows stuff to manifest, right? And it goes on. It could go on for hundreds of years, or maybe never stop. And then you have poltergeist stuff, which just seems to be like one day there's nothing. And then the next day, it's just an explosion, an atomic bomb of of energy and activity. And then eventually, it just runs out of this energy, and then it's just gone. And that's what I think. And that's what intrigues me most about uh, poltergeist cases. I'm gonna to have to find a couple of good books to just outline different ones and really read up on some. Uh, I tweeted. You know what? Actually, it is very kind of. It's very funny. I tweeted out a while back. I'm. I don't know if you're ready for this. I'm 37 years old, and I've had one nightmare my entire life, like when I was eight or nine. And I, I believe I either had it after watching uh, Terror Vision, which is a terrible movie, but when you're eight, you know, there's, there's some weird stuff in it that might be kind of scary. But I think what I. I think I actually had this nightmare after a babysitter was watching, like, an Unsolved Mysteries or something, a documentary type of, you know, television series about Poltergeist. And, like I said, I've I've had one nightmare my entire life, and I had another one, like, a couple nights ago. So now I've had two in 37 years. Uh, that just seemed like a weird kind of coincidence. I never really sat down and thought about, like, oh, yeah, there was that. See, so, yeah, I remember them watching something about Poltergeist. It was probably about Infield. I just don't remember. But there you go. There's a small town secret segment for you. But that is uh, the story of Humpty Do. Not as long, not as involved, but I just love some of the stuff that they get from it. Go to that blog site. They've got the whole video of that dude with his thermal camera and then that, that bullet casing just smack on the floor. And then there are a couple of audio files of like radio interviews that they did, and like they're just talking, and then all of a sudden, a spanner, A.K.A. a wrench, a crescent wrench, hits like uh, a um, a cabinet door or something, and makes this huge, just loud bang. Uh, some great, some great resources, a great article on on this to check out. I highly encourage. And those guys wrote a book too. I didn't get a chance to read it for this, uh, but they did write a book about it. And I will, uh, I'll link it in the show notes if anyone checks it out. But that is, that's the story of, like I said, of Humpty Doo. That is the story of the famous Enfield Poltergeist. And here we are at the middle-ish of the show. I'm going to play some music. I'm not sure which one it'll be yet. I will choose in a second. And then we'll come back and uh, we've got got some uh, local news to talk of. And it's time for the local headlines. So two weeks ago when I started doing stuff for this show uh, no one was talking about this story and now because it's taken me so long to get around to doing this show everyone is talking about this story. So not only do I have uh, one of the original reportings on it but I now also have kind of a follow up and I think about some Redditors maybe figuring out what's going on. So first one Yeah, it's from the local Fox affiliate out there in Utah, fox13now.com. This is written by Jeff Tavis, and the headline reads, We're Not Alone, Mysterious Object Found in Utah During Sheep Count. Utah, not since a monolith was found on the surface of the moon in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, as a mystery object confounded the greatest minds of our generation. Or maybe not. The Utah Highway Patrol posted a photo to social media Friday showing a curious, metallic-looking object found during a count of bighorn sheep in, south, in the southeastern part of the state. According to the post, the item was found buried in the middle of nowhere, with UHP asking the public what they think it is. One person suggested uh, that it fell off a UFO and, uh, Uh, We've been seeing it in Ogden lately. So I guess there's an Ogden, a UFO in Ogden there. And uh, perhaps this is cargo from it. While no alien craft have been officially seen in the area, nothing can be ruled out. Most likely, it's just a piece of sheet metal placed on the ground as a prank or a hoax. However, if uh, you get close and hear someone say, open the pod bay doors, Hal, uh, you'd better run. Officials won't announce the exact location of the objects object as it's in a very remote area and if it, if individuals were to attempt to visit the area there is a significant possibility that they may become stranded and require rescue. And after reading that I, I know that uh Greg and Dana Newkirk are out in like the Salt Flats so they're out in that area At a uh, kind of hope that this is not what they're going to go and try and find but since this article has come out like it's blown up. It's been on I've seen it on Twitter like every day for the past like week and a half and there's video of it now of them going of these highway patrol guys like going to look at it and it's not just a sheet of sheet metal yeah sure that works It's stuck in the ground like when you watch a video of it and they get different angles on it it's it's a triangle like it's a triangle just going down you know what I mean like if you look at it like head-on and just see one side. It just looks like a square. But if you look at it from like a top view, or you get a little bit of an angle on it, you will see that it's just a, like a triangle. Obelisk-looking thing. So then, now here we are. Uh, we're going to hop over to uh, CNET, and uh, Steve Pinclaso here has an article about the mystery monolith puzzle may have been solved by a internet sleuths. And that's the headline. So A few days ago, the internet went wild about the discovery of a, of a metallic monolith mysteriously standing in the middle of the Utah desert. Discovery by the Utah's Department of Public Safety and uh, the rumor mill quickly began churning. Was it aliens? Has 2001 A Space Odyssey been brought to life? I wonder if there's, there's got to be one article where they didn't plug 2001, right? Thanks to some uh, particularly devoted Reddit users. We now know that the likelihood of it being anything extraterrestrial is slim. Though if it was going to happen, I think we can all agree that 2020 would have been the year. The Redditors were able to isolate the monolith's approximate location, tracking the flight paths of Utah's public safety helicopters in order to triangulate a rough area near Canyonlands National Park on the Colorado River. Once the approximate location was narrowed down, the Internet, to, ooh, okay. the Internet Sleuths took to Google Earth to isolate the coordinates and figure out when the monolith first appeared. Historical imaging data reflected that the monolith arrived sometime between August 2015 and October of 2016, leaving open a fairly significant gap. Now, roughly around the time that the epic sci-fi drama Westworld was filming in a nearby location so the best bet at the moment is that someone on the crew either didn't pack up properly or uh, even used the metal to play a long-term Kubrick-inspired prank on the world the location has also been used in a number of other tv shows and movies from more recent films like 127 Hours and Mission Impossible 2 stretching all the way back to classic Westerns in the 1940s and 1960s. Though the chances that the Westerns left behind a 10 to 12 foot metal monolith is about unlikely as the alien scenario. Authorities ask that people don't seek out the monolith themselves as they may well become stranded in the desert and need to be rescued. Don't go looking for it. And this last one is uh, is a little special, actually. Um... And it's going to trigger, uh, I'm going to get my soapbox for a little bit, uh, but I'll go through the article first. This is from the Inverness Courier.co.uk, uh, written by Ian Duncan. The headline reads, contents of mystery box buried at Bullskin House revealed. Oof, God. Okay, here we go. The contents of a mysterious carved wooden box possibly buried at the notorious Bullskin House have been revealed. Uh, The item was bought in an online auction by Rick Spencer, who is 41 and from Grimsby, and uh, it was sealed shut with melted wax. There was also wax which had dribbled onto the lid. The sailor claimed that it had been found beneath the floorboards of the infamous Loch Ness property after the 2015 blaze. This is the house that was previously owned by occultist Aleister Crowley and Led Zeppelin guitarist Aleister Crowley. I mean, Jimmy Page. It was thought to have black magic connections, and Mr. Spencer uh, took the precaution of surrounding it with a circle of salt before he opened it. I uh, put salt around it, and I was dead shaky, he said. Once the lid was lifted, he discovered it contained a doll, coins, vegetation, and an illustration which seemed oddly familiar. Um, If you look at the pictures of said illustration... It's the guy from the Sinister movies. You can see where I'm... <laughs> After doing some research, Mr. Spencer realized the image was very similar... I I guess I should have just read the whole article... From the film Sinister, which was released in 2012, meaning it did not have any connection with Crowley. He said he had heard from experts on the subject who told him it was a Dybbuk box, and the contents could have been a witch's binding spell, he added. It will be something because people are saying... It has been done properly. It does look like it was done in a ritual way. I've met with the seller, and he is adamant that it came from Bolskine House. Mr. Spencer said he is quite keen to hear from anyone who could provide any information about either the box or the owner of the house around uh, 2012 to 2015. The secretive Dutch millionaires, Trudy Picar Baker, who apparently owned it then, he said... There's got to be someone around that knows her. So anyone with any information is invited to contact Mr. Spencer by email at the10biscuitpodcast3 at gmail.com. So here we go. Uh, The reason I did this uh, is because I knew about this way before this story happened. Uh, Our good friend, who, if you are listening to the non-Patreon version of this show and you're getting the ads... And the promos, you heard the promo for uh, Oddball Aussie at the beginning of this episode. He contacted Oddball like a month ago about this thing, and we all saw it, and we all were like, well, it looks like horse shit because it's got the sinister guy on it. It's not ancient, but it could be someone, you know, who went out there one day and tried to do some weird ritual in a much more modern context. So that's the first reason I want to talk about is that... It had, it had popped up on 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 our radar like a while back. But the other reason I want to talk about it is I want to tell everyone, I am not a skeptic, but I am also a rational person. It's like, I can kind of differentiate between what I think is genuinely uh, weird and spooky and not. And I'm here to tell you, Dybbuk boxes are 100% complete horse shit. Um, they don't exist, they never existed if you try to research them in Jewish culture, because they're supposed to be, you know, Jewish wine boxes, you won't find anything in any lore that talks about Dybbuk box and binding spirits and all that. You won't hear of a Dybbuk box in Jewish culture, pop culture, anything like that until, like, what was it, 2005, 2006, when that story came out that brought Dybbuk box to everyone the term Dybbuk box to the lexicon. That's better. The lexicon of uh, pop culture. When that guy was like, I bought this thing on eBay and the dude who had it had a bunch of stuff, weird stuff happened to him. So he sold it on eBay and I bought it. And now a bunch of stuff weird has happened to me. I'm going to like, I think he ended up like hiding it somewhere or seaming it into a wall or some weird stuff. But that guy came out a while back and said, I made all that up. The eBay auction was me, like I sold it to myself, or something like that. Like, the story, the box, I made it all up. You won't find any mention of a Dybbuk box until that story. So, and and here's the thing, like, you can put intention and in like in, you know, magical intention or whatever, kind of in anything you want. So, when we first saw this, we were like, eh because he, you know, honestly was asking for like anyone opinions and I was like, this is this is crap because all the big boxes are crap but like, and also it's got a drawing of the sinister guy on it, but like you know, I said the only legitimate thing I can think of is that somebody thinks that they're doing something and has gone out to Bullskin House and has tried to do something with this box that's like, like I don't think it's it may not be a quote unquote Dybbuk box uh, but maybe someone was attempting to put some sort of intent towards it but uh, no I think that this guy like so many others just bought uh, a badly carved wine box off of eBay and paid a lot of money for it and uh, and now is trying to get some press and hoping that he can uh, get something something for his investment so yeah no Dybbuk boxes are horseshit don't buy Dybbuk boxes off of the internet please And uh, that's it. That has been this edition of uh, Local Headlines. And uh, I have some more tales from Reddit in uh, Your Small Town Secrets here to read after the boom. Okay, and uh, this week I had to go back to Reddit and grab a couple of Reddit stories. Uh, the reason being is because I'm working on a couple of interviews, a couple of interesting interviews, uh, but I haven't got them set and sewn yet. I was hoping to get one last week, but it didn't work out. So I got the, I had to find, find some content for this. Uh, which reminds me, speaking of interviews, I know that last season, like, um, what was that? Episodes like four, five, and six... I kept hinting on like a really cool thing might happen. And uh, I'll let everyone know what it is if it doesn't happen. And uh, I never told anybody like what that was. So I'm going to get into it right now. So uh, another podcaster, Paige at Reverie True Crime. You know how I was like, oh, like, like Corey Taylor invested investigated for our school. She contacted me on Twitter and was like, hey, I know someone who's in the band, Head P.E., and they are good friends with Corey and other people in Slipknot. So she's like, there's a chance if I contact this guy and he, like, sees it or whatever, that he could get in contact with Corey. So obviously, as of right now, that hasn't happened because you would have known about it. But we came so close, very, very close to getting... Cory Motherfucking Taylor on this show to talk about, and if you don't know who that is, that's the lead singer for Slipknot and Stone Sour and uh, his solo his solo record that came out this year also known as Cory Motherfucking Taylor uh, getting him on to talk about his uh, investigations and his experiences at our School so, uh, didn't happen but it came very close to happening and I feel like Corey's the type of guy who would just do this because I remember there was like a story also over the summer where some like Slipknot cover band, like put an ad out because they need a new lead singer and he answered it. I don't know if he ever went and sang with anybody, but he did he was like. i oh, will do it. So I feel like it was completely in the realm of possibility. So I'll keep everyone abreast. Who knows? Uh, it may, you know, once albums died down and tours died down and, People get around to checking their Facebook messages. It still may happen, but I just wanted to let everyone know uh, that's what was going on. But tonight, I've got a couple of little Reddit stories. Uh, this first one, I'm to have to click around and find it because I've lost it, is from user Coalbug88. And this is just a, a nice little story about uh, something staring at you through their window. Okay, so I live out in the country, so there's bound to be some type of animal outside every now and then but none like this. It all started about three days ago, actually. I sleep with my window open, but it has a screen on it. So it was around 11.30 p.m. I'm sure of that, and it wasn't windy. But my office chair that I used decided to turn 90 degrees and stop. More moving furniture. I was sort of creeped out, but I just called my chair a creepy bastard for some reason. Well, then I heard something moving outside in the trees about 50 yards away. I originally thought it was a coyote, a rabbit, or something like that. I looked out and couldn't see anything because it was 11.30 p.m. So I grabbed a flashlight off my, my, my nightstand and aimed it out there and turned it on. Nothing. Well, that was the case until I aimed the flashlight to the left and up and maybe nine feet off the ground was this thing. I don't know how to describe it. It was like a naked guy or something. It didn't look human though. Some uncanny valley stuff going on, it sounds like. I really don't know how to explain it. It just looked like a naked homeless guy, but something was off about his face and arms. Its arms were skinny as hell, but once it could sense light was shining on it, its eyes reflected off green and it jumped down and ran off into a field next to my house. I was tired as hell, and I just thought, what the fuck, I'm going to sleep. And that's exactly what I did. Up to now, my chair had been rolling around on its own, turning 90 degrees to face right at me. I don't know if I'm on some type of drugs or something, but uh, I don't think chairs are supposed to do that. And This one really intrigued me just because of the uncanny valley, you know, human thing in the trees, but also like the light poltergeist activity of like, oh, and by the way, your chair is going to move around too. So a couple of things going on that night. And this next one is from a Rucka from the East Side username. And this is about a ghost cat, a couple of ghost cats. We've never had any like ghost pet stories on the show So when I saw this, I was like, I got to ask to use this one. And they let me use it. This happened several years ago, but I think about it frequently, and I was wondering if anyone else had been visited by their pets after their passing. I used to have two black cats. They were brother and sister, and I had both of them since they were kittens. The female passed away when she was about eight years old. There is a little crawl space accessible only through a closet door in the lowest level of my house about a week after her passing i heard a cat meowing from that crawl space it wasn't unusual to find my cats down there from time to time i opened the door and saw a black cat and assumed it was my other still alive male black cat so i called the male cat's name someone from upstairs must have heard me and said the other cat was on the couch with them and had been there for a while when i looked back in the crawl space The other black cat was gone, and I knew for a fact it never walked past me. It's the only way out. A few years later, the male cat passed. I had no other pets in the house. Several months after he passed, I was home alone, asleep. My kids were their their dads. I was laying in bed, but I was awoken by a very distinct sound and feel of my cat hopping into my bed and walking around. At first I just laid there confused, uh, then when I realized what was happening, I lay there a little longer enjoying his presence, but eventually got curious enough to turn on the light and uh, feel around on the bed. Nothing was there. I haven't been visited since, but have always kind of hoped they would return again. And I've had that happen too. I don't know if I've talked about it on the show before, but I was laying in bed one night and very much felt like my cat. I've only ever had, like, one cat. I've lived my life vicariously through other people's cat, cats, but only recently have I acquired a cat of my own. And uh, he's very much alive, as far as I know, unless he's been a ghost the entire time. But, like, i I felt him, you know, jump on the bed and, and, like, you know, put weight on my, like a paw on my foot, but there's nothing there. And here's the thing, I don't know about your cat, but my cat is very quiet jumping on the bed, but jumping off of the bed, all gracefulness is gone, and it's a big blech. like, he just makes a noise. It just sounds like a sack of crap just hitting the floor. Like, he cannot get off the bed quietly. So I know he didn't just jump down, I guess this is what I'm getting at. And so, I don't know what causes that, because it's, it's, it is a weird thing when you, you feel the bed go down, and then you feel something like, feeling the bed kind of move is one thing, but then feeling something like on you is quite different. So like I said, we never had like a ghost cat ghost pet story on the show. And I really wanted to do that. So thanks. Thanks. Uh, Rocket from the East side. And thanks cold 88 for letting me share your stories. And that has been this edition of your small town secrets. And that is a wrap for tonight's show. Uh, a little delayed, maybe a lot delayed, depending on your preferences, but hey, we're clocking in right now in an hour and 15 minutes, and I edit as I go, so that's going to be a pretty accurate time by the time I'm over with this, so it's going to be a pretty pretty fat and juicy episode, or was a pretty fat and juicy episode, because this is the end of it, and I'm glad to report after the week I've had, no gremlins, really, other than uh, that stupid bug that is still in Logic Pro, even though Logic Pro is updated and Big Sur is out where if you don't have everything plugged into the computer that you had plugged in before and you try to open Logic Pro again, it hangs up. And then you have to go and old open up like an old, an old Logic Pro project and then go to like File New from there. I've been fighting with that all summer. But other than that, uh, no hiccups, no bugs. Show went pretty smoothly. So yay. Uh, and that is it. So time to plug things. Uh, if you have an experience that you would like to share on this show, you can send me your story. You can send me a news article. It could be UFO, Bigfoot, I don't anything small town secrety that you can think of, paranormal, true crime thing, let me know. Like I said, like you can send an article, uh, you can write me up a thing. You could send in an audio file if you would like, or we can hook up a uh, Skype or Zoom or whatnot and uh do an interview. Just let me know. Easiest way to do it is to go to stscast.com. At the bottom of the main page, there's an email form that you can fill out, and I look for those all the time, so that's the easiest way to get them. You can also get at me on social media for experiences or whatever. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter, and that is at STSCast. Facebook is also at STSCast, and uh, Instagram is at STSCast.gram, but also STSCast.com is, of course, the hub for the entire show. There you will find show notes on this episode and every episode you'll find pictures to go along with this episode and every episode you will find links to like, you know, iTunes and Google play and like Spotify, all that jazz. Uh, You will find links to the merch store. If you want to buy a shirt or a sticker or a coffee mug or a phone case or whatever stupid products I decide to put on there. Uh, you can join Patreon through there. You can do all of that stuff if you want to help support the show financially. All that's on there. If you want to support the show but you can't throw uh throw some ducats at it, uh just like rate and review it on your podcatcher of choice, please. Especially iTunes. Uh, getting really close to getting like enough reviews where I think it's gonna bubble a little bit, and uh you know and really just tell someone else about the show, man. Word of mouth. If, like I said, I say at the end of every episode, if everyone gets one other person to start listening to the show, then the audience automatically doubles. So, but thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for uh, supporting if you're doing it through Patreon or if you're buying a shirt or whatever. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I'm sorry this episode came out so late, but everything will be back on track. I don't have to read a book for the next episode, so hopefully I can get it cobbled together. Uh, much more efficiently uh, than this one. This one just kind of got away from me for a little bit, and I decided, like, hey, just get it done when you can get it done, and when you don't think everything is going to catch fire on you, and uh, and just put out the best show that you can put out. Don't try to do it under duress, <laughs> duress that I caused myself. But that is the show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. And remember, until next time, that every town has a secret. What is yours?